maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, Mark Galliotti, the historian of Russia with a focus on areas such as politics, security and the murky backwaters of the Kremlin, joins us to discuss Putin after Prigozhin. With no further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Mark Galliotti, if you're a keen listener to the podcast, you'll have heard him speak about his books, Putin's Wars, The Weaponization of Everything and many more times previous. He's a historian and he's the director of the consultancy group Mayak Intelligence and I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Hi Mark, thank you so much for coming on today. No, oh, good to be back. Well, we've had a bit of distance now. Uh, it's been a number of weeks since this spectacular demise of Prigozhin, kind of going down in flames quite literally. What do you make of, of that event now with a bit of distance? How significant was it? I mean, I think it was significant in the sense that it showed us quite a few of the underlying processes and pressures that are currently really not just shaping, but distorting, I would say, the Putin regime. The very fact that this mutiny could take place was really quite an indictment of Putin's leadership. For 23 years, after all, he's presided over a system which is really based on divide and rule. You know, you've got a modern, functional, almost Western-style bureaucratic state with an almost medieval court on top of it. And within that court, Putin keeps everyone competing against everyone else, because basically that means that he retains his position as the, the pivotal decider. But a key element of that is that he, and only he, is meant to be monitoring these competitions and contests and stops them before they become dangerous and dysfunctional. And look, 
for months people have been warning him that the rivalries between mercenary chief Prigozhin and Minister of Defence Shoigu was beginning to become dangerous. And I think because basically he shied away because he didn't have an easy resolution, he basically allowed this to reach a crisis point. So in some ways, I mean, he failed to manage this. This was really something that Putin should have nipped in the bud. And then and secondly, when it actually happened, we saw the security forces not so much joining the mutiny, but nor were they that eager to actually get involved to stop it. Which again is, if we think of this almost as a vote of confidence in Putin, the security forces largely abstained. And thirdly and finally, the fact that Putin denounced Prigozhin as a traitor, then invited him and his field commanders to tea in the Kremlin, invited Putin, sorry, Prigozhin to Putin's big Africa summit in St. Petersburg, and seemed to have essentially made a deal. There was a formal pardon, after all, for Prigozhin and his men, and then killed him. Well, this is the first time I can think that Putin has actually broken his word with one of his own. He'll break international law quite easily. He will happily lie and deceive anyone else. But you know, like any mafia gang, his regime depends on the idea that those people who are insiders, they know where they stand. And I think for Putin to flip-flop, I think, again, is something else that has been taken as a sign that he's no longer anywhere near as in control that he was in the past. Well, after that initial mutiny, Putin seemed to try and uh, calm everyone down and see things were normal. But in, he was he, he couldn't have let that go. He, he was plotting his own revenge. What about those loyal to loyal to Prigozhin or, or those in Wagner? For them, is the game up? Or do you think they could just be staying calm for now and plotting any sort of revenge or, or, or any future disruption to the Putin regime? Look, we might see some disgruntled individual trying something, but uh, the chances of getting through Putin's quite phenomenally extensive security is pretty minimal. I think generally speaking, what we're already seeing is that some Wagner fighters are essentially now signing on with the regular military or with other mercenary organizations, because Wagner was not the only one. It was the biggest, but not the only one. Others are still active in Africa. We're still seeing an attempt to maintain its quite extensive operations there. Though again, whether that'll last in the long term is another matter. A few are probably taking the opportunity to head home. The point is, look, in this system, we shouldn't really assume that anyone is a true Putinist. Everyone is essentially out for themselves. And when it comes down to it, yeah, there was a lot of personal support for Prigozhin, who in his own horrendous and thuggish way, did have a certain charisma and was able to get on with his fighters. And and they really do feel that Putin, in effect, let them down. And what we're beginning to see is an increasing current of opinion within the ultra-nationalists, the people who usually would have been Putin's most ardent supporters. Increasingly, when they look at the incompetence and the amateurishness of the invasion of Ukraine, they're beginning to feel that it's actually patriotic to be anti-Putin, which is an interesting development. But this is more sort of a general trend rather than actually Wagner fighters. The mutiny was, after all, never about toppling Putin. It was about trying to change his mind, trying to get Putin to support Prigozhin over Shoigu. So I think in the circumstances, you know, essentially people were making all kinds of, of personal decisions it definitely has contributed to this sense that Putin is no longer the man Russia needs. And obviously this political theatre has been occurring on the upper echelons of, of Russian society, but do you have any sense of 
the stability of the economy or this sense of general public opinion? Is this just something which is almost taking place in remove of their daily lives? Or is there a real sense of concern around these political events on the ground? It was interesting that when Prigozhin's troops rolled into Rostov-on-Don, which is the Russian city, which is basically the headquarters for the whole Ukraine war, they were essentially positively greeted. And then when they left after the resolution of the, of the mutiny, there were crowds on the streets applauding, waving flags, taking selfies with, with the fighters and so forth, and particularly actually with Prigozhin himself. Now, look, it's not actually as if this was about personal uh, feelings towards a man who is, after all, a, a thuggish, if not murderer himself, but uh, excuser of murder, people who had his people kill deserters with a sledgehammer to the head and such like. Yeah, so it's not actually that they think that Prigozhin, what a lovely chap. It's more that what they were expressing was an appreciation that someone was willing to stand up and tell it like it was. You know, Prigozhin was there calling out the, the bureaucrats and the sort of parade general, shall we say, in Moscow when he and his boys were actually doing the hard work and was calling out the lies that were coming from Moscow. So I think this, and this is probably one of the reasons why I think Putin flip-flopped and decided that Prigozhin was just too dangerous to be allowed to live. There is clearly a deep sense of dissatisfaction and concern within Russian society about what's going on. There's an interesting polling that although you know Putin's standing for election next year and we know that essentially he will not only win, there you go, you heard it here first, folks, but you know, with whatever margin of victory the political technologists of the Kremlin decide they want to get, at the moment they're talking about 80%. But there was a recent and really sort of innovative series of polling, which actually asked people if they had a totally free vote and they could vote for anyone for president, who would they vote for? And only 30% actually said Putin. I think it gives a sense, although there's no other serious rival at this stage, but that doesn't mean to say that they love Putin and they love what's going on. So there is a lot of sort of simmering discontent. Look, the economy, it's not about to collapse, but yeah, it's 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 beginning to feel the impact of war and sanctions. Russian GDP isn't doing too badly, gross domestic product. But if you take out the effect of the war economy and actually look just at the civilian economy, that really is suffering a lot more. So, so you know, people are dissatisfied, people are worried, people don't really know what's going on. But at present, they don't really have the kind of flashpoint that is going to turn that into anything more organized. I mean, at present, I think most people are just kind of hunkered down. They're almost thinking of politics as being something like the weather. You can't change. You can just you can't change it. You can just endure it. And so I think that's that's the current situation. And, and Prigozhin was dangerous because he might actually try and tell people that maybe there could be some some different route in their own way. And we'll have to see what happens with next year's elections, because elections are in intrinsically destabilizing events. But at present, look, this system is increasingly brittle, but also still very strong. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. 
Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Yeah, and it seems like both in terms of the war and in Russian politics... We're, we're on a bit of a lull period after some very dramatic events in the months prior. I just wonder what your thoughts are on Putin's mentality. If we go all the way back to the uh, article he wrote before the invasion of Ukraine on the you know historic connections between Russia uh, and Kyiv, how do you think he feels about how things have gone now with some more time to maybe think about it past the drama of a Prigozhin rival, past the the thought, you know, in the attritional phase of the war, do you think he's still in the sense of I'm going to win, I'm hyper motivated, or do you think he might start asking, is it really worth it? I mean, look, crawling into the deep, dark recesses of Putin's brain is never a particularly uh, useful, little, unpleasant experience. And look, I mean, I'm, and here I'm essentially clearly having to speculate. Look, there's no way he cannot be aware of how badly things are going to some degree you know we also know that he's surrounded by cronies and yes men he's insulated from you know a lot of the bad news and if one looks at that uh, quite ridiculous and sort of historically bankrupt article that he wrote about why ukraine is not really a country and so forth there would be many many people around him i mean for example his foreign intelligence chief is actually you know a, a basically a, an amateur historian of some note. And there are people who know that it's nonsense. But the point is, this is not a system in which anyone can go and say, Vladimir Vladimirovich, you know you've got that wrong. But nonetheless, you know, he will be getting the casualty figures. He will be getting the updated maps for who controls what. So, you know, he must have some sense of, of where things are. The thing is, what we don't really know, and what I suspect is going to be crucial, is how far he is able to 
in effect, convince himself that happier times are just over the horizon. I mean, his current rhetorical position is the reason why things haven't gone so well in Ukraine is not actually because of the heroism of the Ukrainian people and their determination to resist. It's because essentially Russia is now up against the whole of the West, you know, NATO and and its friends. And Ukraine is in some ways just the battlefield for what is now essentially a global conflict. And in that respect, I think he can kid himself that even just to hold the line for a country with a GDP the size of Spain is pretty damn impressive. And I think he's also convincing himself that just over the horizon, Western unity and determination to continue to support Ukraine is going to start fracturing, whether it's because of a Trump victory in America or whatever else. So, you know, I suspect that although on one level he must be concerned and he must know that his initial expectations of Ukraine have been proven totally wrong, I think he's kind of found himself get out clauses that allow him to justify his mistake. You know, it wasn't that he got Ukraine wrong, it's that the West intervened and still gives him grounds for hope. If he can just hold on another few weeks, months, maybe a year or two, and things will suddenly get better. That would be my guess. One question which has cropped up recently is Ukraine potentially using Western weapons to hit inside Russian territory. And that bolsters Putin's ability to say, listen, this is you know Russia versus the West, uh, and, and say that around the world. Do you worry about that? Is that something we should be concerned about, actual strikes inside Russian territory with Western weapons? Do you think that's just an inevitability, or is this something which we should be concerned about? I mean, I think it is worrying because of two reasons, both really related to Putin's capacity to escalate. Look, you know, he talks a lot every now and then, I mean, hinting at the use of tactical nuclear weapons. I think that's very, very unlikely for all kinds of reasons, not least the fact that the Chinese pretty much read him the riot act on that one. However, he does have other ways of escalating. One of the things that, in fact, I thought we would face, but we haven't yet, are Russian covert operations inside Europe to try and disrupt the supply lines bringing in weapons. I mean, back in 2014, for example, there was an explosion in a Czech ammunition dump at a place called Vrbjetice, which turned out to be a Russian military intelligence operation to prevent a supply of ammunition that was going to be supplied to Ukraine from, from ever getting there. We haven't had more Vrbjetice's. And I think in part, that's precisely because Putin himself is very eager not to provoke NATO. You know, he's very, very clear that he understands that that, that, that will be a, a totally um, impossible challenge. But nonetheless, if he absolutely feels that his back is against the wall, and if he thinks precisely that NATO is now essentially arming a war of invasion against Russia, he may be tempted to do that. But more to the point, look, at the moment he's holding back from further mass mobilizations, even though that's what his generals would want, because he's aware that it's politically dangerous and risky for himself. I mean, last time he launched a mobilization in September and October of last year, for every one Russian he managed to impress into service, between two and three Russians actually fled the country. So, you know, there, there are risks. But on the other hand, again, if he absolutely feels that he has no risk, no, no, no option, he could mobilize another one, two, three, five hundred thousand men. Remember, Russia's population is more than three times Ukraine's. Ukraine has inflicted more casualties on the Russians than it has suffered, but proportionate to its population, it's actually suffered worse than the Russians. 
So, you know, there are things. And it's not that there's any kind of fixed red lines, but I think we have to be very careful that in some ways, although it sounds bizarre, and you think we just would want to win as quickly and as effectively as possible, in some ways we want to beat Russia at the right speed, quick enough to minimize the damage to Ukraine, but in a way that does not panic Putin, who is prone to panic when he's actually forced to make a decision, who does still have escalatory options. I wanted to ask you, because I saw an interesting piece you wrote about how Ukraine is, is sort of fighting. And, and one of the things we saw was the um, Sevastopol missile strike against uh, Russian Admiral Viktor Sokolov. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but you know, these kind of strikes, how significant do you think they are? Are these just little wins for Ukraine or do these kind of push Putin into thinking about any gains are going to come at an incredible price at this stage? I think that instead of thinking about the effect on Putin, which I don't really think is that great, we should actually think about the impact on the people who are actually fighting the war for Putin, the various commanders of the Russian ground forces, air force and navy. Because you know what's clear is that Putin, for example, hasn't learned the lesson that Stalin learned very early in the Second World War. I mean, at first Stalin was very politically interventionist, and he he basically said that he you know he did not believe that the Germans were about to invade, and thus the Red Army was caught very much um, on on the back foot when it did. But then Stalin learned, learned had learned his lesson, stepped back, and let. The generals do the generaling. Putin is still micromanaging often, still interfering, still trying to sort of push a more offensive strategy when his generals are saying that's really not, not the way to do it. So in that context, when these commanders also find themselves in a position in which actually, thanks to not just the precision missiles that the Ukrainians are being provided, like the British Storm Shadow, but I'd say even more importantly, the precision intelligence that above all the UK and the US are, are, are providing, which puts them all at risk. I think that begins to demoralize them. That begins to make it, for example, harder for them to gather. I mean, this particular attack that killed, apparently killed Sokolov. And it's interesting that although the Russians are saying nothing about that, you'd think it would be very easy for them to parade him on TV to belie the Ukrainian claims if he was actually fine. Um, but anyway, this, this kind of thing, this happened during uh, precisely a command meeting in which Sokolov was talking to his senior officers. Now, there is a certain physicality to command. You can't do everything over a screen or over a phone. But what happens the next time you know, his successor or one, one of the generals wants to have a, a meeting with, with his senior commanders? Are they going to be wondering if a cruise missile is about to come through the window? So I think it's actually what it begins to do in terms of demoralizing the, the senior commanders, the people who are actually, as I say, fighting the war. That's where we need to think about the, the potential morale and um, uncoordinating effects of these kind of decapitating strikes. And this is why they matter. This is a question you probably get asked a lot, but would there be any signs or signals in the future of what would lead to an actual negotiation? Is there is there some event that could happen which you think leads to a point where actual negotiations take place to kind of cease hostilities? Or is this just going to be a frozen conflict for the foreseeable in your view? Or is there something we could hope for? Well, I mean, the, the obvious event would precisely be if Putin doesn't wake up one morning or is toppled or, or steps down because 
first of all, historically, actually, the, the ends of different authoritarian regimes and even in individual rulers in, in Russia, Soviet Union, has tended to lead immediately to a thaw. And frankly, one would imagine that a new leadership would, would be very eager to blame everything on Putin and see, see if they can get out of this. Barring that kind of deus ex machina option, I think the point is that at the moment, there is no real grounds for negotiation because both sides think time is on their side. The Ukrainians think, especially with all this Western kit that they're getting, is precisely that they'll be able to push through, particularly in the south, they'll be able to isolate Crimea, put Putin in a position in which, in a way, he is forced to negotiate unless he wants to actually see Crimea, which, unlike the rest of Ukrainian territory, is a, a bit of real estate that Russians think is, all Russians pretty much, think is genuinely theirs and which will be a massive political blow, probably an existential political blow to Putin to lose. So, you know, their hope is that they will reach a situation on the battlefield where they either push out the Russians or force the Russians to, to deal. And likewise, Putin is hoping that in some ways he wins by not losing. That, as I said, if he holds on long enough, Western will to dump but are after all billions of pounds, dollars and euros every month into supporting the Ukrainian economy and war effort, that after a certain point, we, we begin to get fed up essentially and start pushing Kiev to make some kind of concessions in the name of negotiation. So at the moment, both sides think that actually the longer this goes on, the better for them. So really, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to see either both sides suffering a lot more or one side losing its its optimism. And I think until that point, we might see a, a sort of a temporary, if not freezing, but at least cooling of the war, as we will, for example, over the winter. But we're not actually going to see any kind of meaningful conversations about how to end it. There's a final question I want to ask you, but just to pick up on, if you have a thought on what you just said around Crimea, it could be an existential blow to Putin. Now, obviously, the Ukrainians' desire is to take back Crimea and to put pressure on Crimea. Um, do you think uh, Western allies are um, behind Ukraine in, in, in that objective? Or do you think that's another example of something which could cause real escalation? I know we've had Orlando Feige, the historian who believes that, that Ukrainian troops coming into Crimea could be the time when Putin would genuinely think about tactical nuclear weapons and things like that. I certainly think that's a point where he would be desperate and he would be looking for hitherto uh, ruled out options. But I think it's also worth noting that not only, I think, are there many in the West who ultimately think that actually Crimea may be a step too far, there are also people in Kyiv. Again, it's interesting when the conversations one has off the record that a lot of the people who cleave to the very maximalist current official line, look, I'm not in any way criticizing the Ukrainians for this, but you know what they are saying is essentially peace means you know, every single square centimeter of Ukrainian soil re restored, massive reparations, and also justice for the people who started this war. In other words, you know, war crimes tribunals for people like Putin. Now, there is a sense in the West that that's maybe a bit too big an ask. That at some point, if there's to be any kind of peace talks, because those demands are essentially for a complete capitulation, that Ukraine will have to give something. And Crimea, something about Crimea, maybe a demilitarized Crimea, maybe a new and honest internationally mediated referendum on Crimea's future, which includes those people who fled 
after the annexation of 2014. Maybe something like that, but that actually ultimately Crimea will be the linchpin of any negotiation. And there are people in Kiev, as I say, who themselves say this might need to be the way forward, not least because many people in Crimea genuinely regard themselves as Russian. And I mean, if I can use the words of one Ukrainian interior ministry official who spoke to me, he said, look, we risk ending up having our own Northern Ireland in in Crimea. Um, and I think, you know, so for, for these reasons, we may well see Crimea in due course coming onto the, the negotiation table. But as I said, we're not there yet. The final point I just want to touch on is the prospect of conflict around Taiwan is something which people are talking about increasingly. If that, if there was to be conflict around Taiwan before this war was over, I mean, I'm asking you to speculate a lot here, but you know that's a scenario which could happen. What do you think the impact would be if Western support was fractured in that way? That would really pose a serious uh, security dilemma because it's not just about attention and so forth. It is simply about resources. Obviously, there are no Western troops apart from a handful of trainers and the like currently in Ukraine. But on the other hand, there's been a pretty massive and continuing flow of equipment and ammunition. Uh, particularly if we're talking about, for example, you know, high-tech missiles, things like the sort of Patriot system and, and, and such like. Would, above all, the United States have the bandwidth to be involved in a sort of massive, potentially protracted conflict over Taiwan and continue its operations in, in Europe? I'm not entirely convinced. I mean, look, at the moment, obviously, the rhetoric is they say, yes, of course, you know, we are absolutely committed. We will support the Ukrainians as long as it takes with whatever it takes. That's fine. I could imagine, though, given that Europe on the whole will not be much use, really, in a, in a conflict with over Taiwan in terms of forces, it maybe there'll be some sanctions or whatever. Um, but essentially, I think Washington would basically be turning to Europe and say, look, we are now going to have to be rebalancing. You are going to have to step up and provide a lot more assistance to, to Ukraine. And I'm not 100% sure that, that Europe can do it. Europe has the money. That's not an issue. It's a production capacity. I think we, we've all got used to a world of sort of Amazon Prime, just-in-time delivery systems, where if you need something, you buy it and, and it comes in a box the next day. The point is, you know, a couple of hundred thousand artillery shells, they are no longer extra stocks lying around in the world. This is why, you know, America is buying from South Korea so that it can send its own. And Putin was talking to the North Koreans about buying some of their stocks. You know, we, we are in that kind of a position. I'm not sure the world, frankly, could handle two full-scale in industrial wars at one time. So I think that, again, this, this, this is going to be a real challenge. But I think what's holding the Chinese back, it's worth noting, I mean, even assuming that they actually have such intentions to um, militarily take back Taiwan, is in some ways it's a little bit like the Crimea situation. If, if the United States cannot respond in the kind of measured, careful, staged, conventional terms, it's faced with a dilemma. Either it just simply sets back and say, sorry, Taiwan, we said we try and help you, but ah, there's not much we can do. Or 
it might actually end up moving to some rather more dangerous, again, I'm not necessarily saying nuclear, but, you know, for example, strikes on mainland targets and such like, you know, it might end up actually having to escalate to get out of its bind. So, you know, we, we are clearly in a very kind of complex situation. The only bit of silver lining I can provide is I think everyone understands these days that it's very hard to war game what could happen. You know, just as we were to a large extent caught off guard by the Ukraine invasion, you know, even those people who were sure Russia would invade, they were also sure that Russia would win in two weeks. So I think, you know, as we are in an era of, of uncertainty, which also applies to the Chinese trying to walk in the West, uncertainty can sometimes be a great deterrent. It's when, like Putin, just before the invasion, you think you know what's going to happen. That's when actually you're more likely to act. If you know you don't really know for sure what's going to happen, then you may well feel deterred. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced and edited by myself, Connor Boyle. Check out the Intelligence Squared newsletter to get the latest on all of our upcoming events over at intelligencesquared.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.